pursuit through politics and justice, which we talked about last week. And there we talked about how uh, there is no lasting hope in the pursuit of human justice or human politics. You know, today, and I, I meant to say this last week, but so I'm going to throw it in here today. Today, many political parties promise to do what has never been achieved by a government in human history. And so it has become a religion whereby we spend hundreds of billions of dollars trying to achieve things that have never been achieved by humans in the past, equity, uh, a cease to all racism, uh, that we would try to change men's hearts by a government is ultimately fleeting. It is hevel. It will not create lasting change. And so we skipped through chapter 4, 4 to 12, so it can be com combined with chapter 5, 10 uh, through chapter 6 uh, next week. But the key theme of Ecclesiastes all the way through is that human effort is of limited value. And so we learn in chapter 3, verse 14, whatever God does endures forever, but nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. There is no enduring profit from merely human endeavors. Nothing of our efforts stand. Nothing lasts into eternity with the exception of the good works which God has established, Ephesians 2.10, and prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the only thing that lasts of what you and I do, the only thing that will achieve lasting profit is whatever God has already established for us to do. In Ecclesiastes, the pursuit of wealth, fame, legacy, even wisdom have all been declared to be hevel, that mist or vapor, fleeting. And now, in chapter 5, the author comes to human efforts in religion. Human efforts in religious pursuits are hevel. Or more specifically, religion without the fear of God is hevel. That is, it produces no lasting gain. And so the chief concern of the author is that such religion, rather than obtaining the favor of God, instead incurs his wrath. The Bible does not consider the worship of the one true God in spirit and in truth, John 4.24, to be an easy or simple task. Our human passion is for idols made in our own image, even if intellectually our doctrine of God is correct, all too often we deny its truth in our practice by what we do and say. The book of Deuteronomy insists again and again that the one undivided God who made the world and redeemed Israel, his people, must be approached and related to by one undivided human person. And so in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so just as God is holy, that is undivided, one in purpose, so also we are to be holy worshipers in undivided pursuit of God. Worship in spirit and in truth begins with deep internalization of God's Word, which is to be the focus of life in all its aspects. And so the command continues, verse 6, 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so we are called first and foremost to a constant meditative remembering of reality so that we are formed by it rather than trying to assert ourselves upon it. Reality belongs to the Lord, not to us. We are not many creators creating our own reality. We must know God's reality. This is wisdom. And so this is where the fear of the Lord comes in. The prophetic books constantly draw attention to the way in which even biblical religion is in practice all too often merely a matter of external behavior and pretense. Lip service offered by a people whose hearts are far from God. Isaiah 29, 13, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their heart is far from me, and their fear of me is but a commandment taught by men. And so Jesus stood in this tradition of the prophets when he criticized religious practitioners of his day, describing the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 27, and 28, as whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. By contrast, sincerity in repentance and good works are the mark of the Christian. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5 criticizes the false religion that embraces a form of godliness and yet lacks the transformative power of true faith. The person who engages in this sort of godliness stands on dangerous ground, for we are then toying with a God who is holy and good. And so Ecclesiastes 5 begins, verse 1, guard your steps when you go up to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, this doesn't mean the church building today, although it certainly includes attendance at a worship gathering like this one. Jesus eradicated the distinction between holy and common spaces, abolishing such divisions through his death and resurrection, which was symbolized at that time by the, the rending of the temple veil. You ever notice in some of our songs we sing about the veil was torn and you're like, what does that mean? This was the temple veil that separated the holy places from the common places. It was torn apart. And so now there are no sacred structures, but there is a sacred people that gathers together. There's nothing special about the building we worship in, except that God's people are here. We no longer worship on a mountain or at a temple, John 4, 21, but when we gather to worship together, we ourselves, 1 Peter 2, 5, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we can apply this to ourselves. Guard your steps when you go up to the house of God. We come 
to listen to God's word, sing of his glory, and offer our daily lives to him, Romans 12, 1, as living sacrifices. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 continues, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. The prophets repeatedly corrected the idea that the ritual itself without accompanying repentance and faith was profitable. God refuses ritual without repentance. I'm going to read Amos 5, 21 to 24, but the exact same sentiment is found in Micah 6, 6 to 8, and Isaiah 1, 11 to 17, and many of the Proverbs. It says, Amos 5, excuse me, 21, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In Isaiah 1, God protests the trampling of his temple courts by those bringing vain offerings and sacrifices, which to him are an abomination. Saul learns in 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. The sacrifice of fools then refers to a formalism and manipulation that performs the ritual in order to gain God's favor, when the heart of the, the worshiper is actually far from God. No faith in or fear of God accompanies the ritual. It is foolish because only a fool thinks that sacrifice or any other ritual will cleanse the conscience and blot out sin without the need to repent. They go through the motions thinking, this is what we Christians do, but religious form without spiritual substance actually repulses God. Such worshipers are so foolish that they are not even aware that their sacrifices are evil, an offense to God. We are guilty of this. We easily fall into the rut of going through the motions because that's just what we do. We come to church, we say the prayers, we sing the songs, we eat the meal, we do the religious things, but our heart is not in it. This is how it is possible for some people to show up for church week after week, year after year, decade after decade, without any real transformation. There's a form of godliness but without genuine sanctification. When they go home, they're still cruel, indefinite, indifferent, excuse me, perverse, and self-centered. Not only can we fall into this rut of mindless religious expression, but we can also easily fall into the mindset that our religious rituals will somehow gain us God's favor. Not only is this wrong-headed, this is evil. It is an evil attempt to manipulate God. It is a form of paganism or witchcraft 
to perform rituals for God so that He will give you what you really want in return. If God is a means to an end, as you try to gain the desires of your heart, you are a practicing pagan. That is not the gospel. That is not authentic Christianity. Just because you go to church and worship God does not mean that you are not a fool. The fool supposes that worship or sacrifice or service covers up unfaithful living. But such foolish sacrifices achieve the very opposite of their intended effect. They anger God and add to the separation. Your worship may actually be making things worse. The solution instead is to draw near to listen. This is the first and great task of the worshiper, to listen with the full intent of of full obedience to the divine voice. Worship, true worship, is rooted in obedience. The first requirement laid upon God's people in the Old Testament after he rescued them and gave them the law was not to speak, O Israel, or sing, O Israel, but hear, O Israel. This is a common and insistent command in both the Old Testament law and elsewhere. Without hearing, there can be no understanding of the kingdom of God, no worship in spirit and in truth. Thus, Jesus repeats Matthew 13, 9, and several times elsewhere, he who has ears, let him hear. How can we worship in truth if we do not draw near to hear? We cannot separate true worship from the proclamation of God's Word. In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, part of the process was to read from God's law and explain it as an accompaniment to the sacrifice. We can sometimes think of this just being, uh, you know, a a butcher's shop where they're, they're barbecuing the animals, but this was actually a time of teaching as they would read the Word of God with the sacrifices. Because revelation is the key to Christian worship. The God of the universe wants us to worship Him for who He is and what He has done, and He has revealed that to us in the Bible. We often reduce worship to merely singing, but worship is all of life. Again, Romans 12:1, a living sacrifice. Worship has to do with whether you obey the revealed will of God laid out in the Bible. And so you can attend as many worship gatherings as you want, You can sing or gesture as fervently as you want, but if you cannot obey God's word, then you have a worship problem. The Bible authoritatively tells us what to do with our time, our money, our sexuality, our relationships, and so much more. And we must come and listen in order to submit to it. That is worship in spirit and truth. It's not up for a debate or a vote, as though if enough Christians agree that the same thing or another is is not a sin or a requirement anymore, we can abandon it. God has revealed Himself to us in the Word, so we must listen and obey. Continues verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. 
For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. And so here it talks about our mouth and our heart. It speaks of both verbal and internal dialogue with God, what we call prayer. The pagan religions were known for their lengthy incantations and mantras. The longer the prayer, the more effective, right? The more power it contained. And this is why Jesus warned his own generation, Matthew 6, 7 to 8, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Paul confronts this in the Corinthian church, right? They're speaking in tongues all together. They have many things to say, so many things to say that they can't find enough words for them. They have to have made up words. And they think that somehow this is spiritual. It's following after the pagan example where they thought that their many words would make them heard. The problem here again is not that God just so hates so many words, but that it is an attempt to manipulate God. People think that if they use spiritual-sounding words, that God will hear and answer their prayers. And this is not just true of those who simply repeat a long-written liturgical formula. It is also true of the unwritten repetition that becomes the norm in modern free-form worship. Now, it's not that we must avoid praying in King James English or modern evangelical buzzwords but that we must speak reverently and sincerely to God. It's not about what you say or how you say it, as it that is the issue as much as where your heart is at. So actions and phrases that may well sincerely and thoughtfully stem from the heart of an individual worship, uh, worshiper, sorry. So one person might have a a liturgy they've written, a prayer they've written down, an act that they do out of genuine love for God, but then someone else picks it up and it's duplicated by others who are impressed by its overt spirituality and yet have no concept of the true intent behind it. And so it's not about whether old forms are bad or new forms are bad, but the problem is taking a form without understanding its purpose and applying it as though this will somehow gain us God's favor. And so this takes place with every outward worship expression, whether the songs, many sing along, whether they understand or mean the words, or prayers, or even eating the Lord's Supper. No matter whether the tradition is old or a new one, there are those who observe the ordinance with no real sincerity or any understanding of its meaning. The presumption is that we can be in the position of control moving God by our words. If we think that because of how we pray or what we pray or that in the increase of words that we pray it gets God to do what we want Him to, then we have sunk into paganism and attempts to manipulate God. The reason for the commandment to be reverent and let our words be few is given that God is in heaven and you are on earth. This phrase emphasizes the distance between God and humans. That that humans are limited, and God is supreme. He is the creator. We are mere creation. We will not take the, the driver's seat in this relationship. We will not be in control. We will not set his agenda. When there's a plan laid out, we will not, by prayer, change that plan. 
We will not decide for God what he is about to do. Again, we need to recognize his reality and learn to live in it and pray for it. If we truly understood the gulf between a holy enthroned God and a defiled, self-centered sinner, we would be rendered speechless. We would be like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6-5, who upon seeing the Lord in his glory exclaimed, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Or like the apostle John, who, though a disciple beloved by Christ in his presence, Revelation 1-17 fell at his feet as though dead. Every true act of worship begins with the gracious action of God. It, it, the action of God brings this gulf between himself and the worshiper, uh, to, bridges it through the merits of his son, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And so every time we worship, we need to remember, this isn't my right this is graciously granted to me through the sacrifice of Christ. We can even approach God. We can pray to God. We can sing to Him because of this sacrifice. So every act of worship begins with God. We are commanded then to be reserved with our words in prayer because of God's awesomeness in heaven in contrast with our sinful frailty here on earth. We are not giving Him His marching orders. Nor do we need to be overly specific in what we are asking of him. He knows what you need before you ask him. Now, I wasn't going to do this, but I have to take a, a bunny trail because I grew up in the Word of Faith Charismatic Church. And there we learned to be very specific to, with God because God isn't super bright. So we would tell God exactly how he should do it, what his, the plan should be. And so people would pray like, God, we pray for this leg and we would pray we asked that the ligaments would be knit back together again and we pray that the cells would form and we just like tell god like that it was like the longer you could pray and the more specific you could pray then god would know how to do it and you could just kind of direct the power it's so blasphemous it treats god like nothing it treats god uh, so terribly he is in heaven you are on earth and he knows what you need before you ask him. So it is the word of God that should take priority in our worship, not the words of worshipers. The speaking to God must flow from our listening to God, always bearing in mind who God is, a holy God, approachable only through the merits of Jesus, but, but also a loving Father who knows exactly what we need before we even ask him. So our prayers become very short when we recognize God for who he is. Not, we, not that we don't spend time in prayer and time listening to God, but oftentimes my prayers are, God, you know. You know what we need. It's completely been transformed from that paganism of telling God how to do it and what to do. You can't worship God and yourself. Only a fool thinks that they can manipulate God to get what they want. Only a fool thinks that God doesn't know their motives as they come to him. A fool, then, it says, can be recognized by their many words. Verse 3, For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice 
with many words. Now, an unfortunate effect of how I've chosen to present the material in Ecclesiastes is that we've missed the reference for this one. The preacher has already explained that selfish ambition results in endless toil without satisfaction. And so this, I, I think, is the comparison here. Just as the elusive dream of a better life comes with many cares and much busyness, so also a fool's voice is accompanied by many words. That's what I think it means. It actually doesn't really matter to our purpose because the point is a fool has lots of words when he comes to worship. It is as natural for the fool to be verbose as it is for the dreamer to pointlessly toil in search of gain. But the heart that is attentive to God does not produce needless toil, nor does it produce needless words. There is a more modern saying which paraphrases Proverbs 17, 28. Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. I've told my wife oftentimes that I need to learn to speak less because I only know two types of elderly men, quiet ones and fools. The wise person comes before God carefully and with due attention. Unlike the fool, they fear God. That is, they recognize him for who he truly is. Only a fool comes to God thinking, as I said, they can hide their motives, and only a fool thinks they can hide their internal dialogue. Can you imagine coming before a king, and internally you're saying, I'll just do this, this, and this for him, and then he'll do what I want. And then it's broadcast out loud to everyone there. This is what it is like to come and practice religious exertion to do the ritual with an evil motive in our hearts. As if God doesn't see your motive and your internal dialogue. Only a fool thinks that their many words will affect God. It is the supreme act of impiety to presume that we can be in the position of control when dealing with God. We have nothing to offer God, nothing to barter with. We are in no position to impress him with our words or to make any sort of bargain. And this we see in the next section, uh, starting in verse 4. All of these come together to be about religious expression. It says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Temple vows were a common feature of Old Testament worship and involved promises to consecrate such things as sacrifices or money to God. Identical terminology as uh, here in Ecclesiastes is found in the law, which states, Deuteronomy 12, 11, Then, to the place that the Lord your God will choose, to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your, the contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And then Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 23 adds, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. 
You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Now, vows were meant, these sacred vows were meant to be out of passionate love and reverence to God. They were established among the types of sacrifices one could rightly offer to God out of thanksgiving. And so if I didn't have it with me, I might say, oh man, God, you're so great. I want to give you this thing, but it's back home. But I'm going to give you this sheep or this money or this period of my time as with the Nazarite vow. There were vows that were taken in worship to God, but if you didn't have it on you, you would tell God, I I owe you. But during a crisis, people often make vows or promises to God. God, if you'll just do this for me, then I will do that for you in return. If you will get me out of this jam, I will serve you. If you will bless me, I will give more financially. I'll give you half my winnings. Not only can such vows be made as manipulation rather than genuine expressions of affection for God, but then we fail to do as we have promised. We deceive ourselves in an attempt to deceive God. And and one of the ways we try to get out of a commitment we have made is through procrastinations. We say we will do something, but we do not do it immediately, and then ultimately we fail to do it at all. I'm guilty of this. I've done this. In a moment of passion, I'm going to do this. Later. And later never comes. And so sometimes we... uh, are unable even to fulfill the vows we have made. Showing that our promise before God is no more than idle boasting. Verse 5 says that it is better not to have made the vow in the first place. Hold your tongue. Keep your mouth shut. A foolish braggart makes vows he can't or won't keep. And God has no pleasure in fools. Now, how do we break vows, you might be asking. You know, we, we don't have a, a practice where we come and, and if we don't have it with us, we, we make a vow to God of what we're going to give. Uh, but we make plenty of public and private vows before God. We make marriage vows. It's better to be single and unmarried than to get married and break your vows. We dedicate ourselves to God in front of the church. We publicly dedicate our children to His service. We covenant as members of the church to share the financial burden and to confront one another when we sin. There's all sorts of vows we make which seem quite noble, spiritual. And so your mouth dragged you into sinfully making a vow you were not prepared to keep. Do not try to excuse yourself by saying it was a mistake. It says that will only anger God all the more and incite him, verse 6, to destroy the works of your hands. And so instead of trying to excuse ourselves, we must confess our sin. Do not try to cover it up and hide it. Don't try to make it sound like a simple mistake. Acts 5 tells of Ananias and Sapphira, who sold some property and said that they were giving all of the proceeds to the church, but secretly they kept back some of it for themselves. Now the story's nuts because they didn't have to give any of it, And then they didn't have to tell people that they were going to give all of it, 
But because, Acts 5, 4, they contrived to lie, not only to man but to God, God killed both of them even while they were in the midst of making their sacrifice. They were coming with a sacrifice to worship God, a sacrifice he did not command them to give. Just something that they wanted to be a part of the worship of the church in which others were doing the same thing. And in the New Testament, the result was their death. They angered God, just as we talk about here in Ecclesiastes. Hebrews 12, 20, 29 reminds us to offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Once again, with, as with sacrifices and prayers, with vows, the point is that religion will not get us what we want. There is no lasting profit to be earned through religious expressions. In the end, this too is hell. The, the wise know that God cannot be manipulated by worthless vows, and only those who fear God can consistently be expected to keep them. And so if your motivation in religious expression resembles do what God wants and then he will do what you want, this is not Christianity. That is idolatry and sorcery. That is not the gospel. It ends verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. This is that word hevel. But God is the one you must fear. Human agency has severe limitations. This is what Ecclesiastes is all about. We are creatures, not creators. Both the toil to achieve our dreams and religious words are hevel, vanity, vapor, creating no lasting profit. Only the fear of God will produce a lasting blessing for his people. We have a hard time understanding the concept of the fear of the Lord because we live in a culture that has almost no reverence for authority. There now exists, even in the church, this sort of casual Christianity uh, where Jesus is our homeboy or our co-pilot rather than our absolute formidable king and awe-inspiring master. Fearing God is taking God seriously, taking him at his word, that he will act on what he says and follow through with his promises as well as with his threats. Hebrews 12, 25 reads, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Those who Moses warned of their disobedience died in the wilderness. How much more, now that we have received the word of the one who is in heaven, who rules and reigns, will we be held accountable? How much less will we escape if we reject his word? It is vital that we understand that though it is clear that the key to avoiding God's anger is right behavior, so the key to right behavior is genuine faith which is otherwise known throughout Scripture as the fear of the Lord. And so the word Christian today is often used to disguise 
narcissistic attempts at spirituality without truly worshiping God and without being commanded by Him. Faith and religion are reduced to egotistical agendas for self-aggrandizement and selfish ambition so that we can eventually get on without God. But despite our careless words and empty religion, Jesus brings us back to God. He fully cleanses us and allows us to come boldly before God's throne. He not only fulfilled the sacrificial requirement, but he also fulfilled the requirement of obedience because he did God's will. And so Hebrews 10, 5 to 7, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 10 because it's coming back to the same thought. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. In verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice and perfect obedience, we too can follow him into the holiness of God. I want to leave you with a quote uh, from the Exalting Jesus uh, series from our church library. It's a charge for the church. I want to read this from the Aiken brothers. And now in Christ, we let our yes be yes and our no be no. We keep our word and make good on our promises. How glorious would it be if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ was the one place on all the earth where people kept their vows and made good on their promises. If that is not true of us, then we need to repent and confess. Let us stand in awe of our great God through the grace of Jesus Christ and let us offer our whole lives and all of our words as pleasing sacrifices to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace expressed to us through our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, work in our hearts, we pray so that we might offer you undivided fealty to live according to your word. Forgive us for coming to you as fools. Forgive us for coming with a barter in our minds, a trade by which we would have the good life we desire and you would get the worship that you're lucky to have from us. May we worship you in spirit and truth. That is, worship you according to who you are and in how you have commanded us to worship you. We come to you, our great sovereign God of the universe, Lord over all. And we have this incredible benefit, this incredible grace, that you bend to us and you listen to what we speak to you. You already know what we need and you already care for us. 
may we recognize the momentous occasion of speaking to our God. And may we come to you with the wisdom only you can provide. Transform our hearts in this, I pray. Bring us to genuine repentance. We desperately need you. Some of us here, God, cannot continue in the pattern of religion that we have walked in up until this time. Some of us are walking a path destined for destruction because we have picked and chosen in which ways we will worship you and in which ways we will serve ourselves. We have picked and chosen which of your words we will believe and practice and obey and which of your words are just not fit for our culture and our time. Forgive us for this foolish hubris. Humble us with the reality of who you are and give us the wisdom to walk in the reality that you have chosen. We ask this for the glory of Jesus. As you sanctify your church so that you may present her as a spotless bride for our Savior. Amen.